0: Women make up 70% of the healthcare workforce, but only 20% of its leadership. On Her Story, we'll explore the careers of bold and influential women from Silicon Valley to Capitol Hill and learn how they've overcome the odds. I'm your host, Angela Jane, and this is Her Story, a program where we explore what's beyond the glass ceiling. This special edition is guest hosted by Lynn Chow O'Keefe, founder and managing partner of Define Ventures and founding member of the Her Story Advisory Council.
1: Karen, thank you so much for joining us at Her Story where we talk about leadership in healthcare. There is no better person to talk to than you about this in terms of your long accomplishments in terms of being a physician, being in government, and then also as a public health commissioner, and then also at Google. We have so much to cover here. So thank you so much for your time today.
2: Glenn. it's good to see you and I'm really delighted to be here. I can't wait for our conversation. And these are really difficult times for so many people around the world, but it makes it even more important to make sure people have the chance to share and hear stories from others. So I'm happy to share a little bit of mine.
1: Thank you, Karen. And what's been so phenomenal about her story is people starting from the beginning, many of us have been influenced by how we grew up, our family, Love to hear about how that's shaped your vision of leadership and how you've progressed in your career.
2: I had a very scrappy <laughs> origin story. We were quite poor. I was a free lunch kid, and my mom raised us. There were three of us. I'm a middle child. She raised us after my dad left when I was five, and she did that pretty well on her own. She didn't have family support for a variety of reasons, and it was just a remarkable woman. I mean, she didn't have a college degree, so she started working what she could do. She was a housekeeper basically, and one of the jobs she had for a while was people move out of apartments. She would at night go in and clean them, and our neighbor would spend the night at the house so that somebody was watching us, and then she could go to work all night, and then she was awake all day taking care of us. She's just the kind of person that put others before herself and found a way to help us get out of poverty by encouraging us to get an education and it shapes very much the way I think about the importance of doing for others and putting community first.
1: You've done so much work around health equity, how you think about social determinants of health. Has this been a driver for you, having this type of perspective?
2: It's interesting, I say a lot that my poverty was not a dangerous poverty. Like We were poor and we had food insecurity. My mom had mental health issues and so did my father. So there was a lot of instability in the household or in the circles around us, but I didn't have the um, threats to life and limb kind of sense. I also had the advantage of growing up in Austin, Texas, which at the time was a relatively small town, like 300,000 people, but it had a very strong infrastructure to support kids in poverty, basically. I mean, we had a public transportation system that was reliable and safe that allowed me to get to after-school programs and go to dance and theater classes at the Austin Recreation Department Center. That was basically after school. We would go there because my mom was working. And that was the way that we had further personal development, had a safe place to be. And it was basically free. We had parks, we had outdoor theater, movies in Zilker Park. Just the, the reality that I had a programs like a recreation department or green space and safety makes me think a lot about how important context is to people's development. It wasn't just that I had a mom who said, education is your way out of poverty, Mm -hmm. and think about others because someone's always struggling more than you are, no matter how much you are. I guess the reason I'm grateful is because I had this social infrastructure, basically. And I don't think a lot of kids have that. And when I was health commissioner, it was very stark contrast for me, because when you're the commissioner for an urban environment like New Orleans, you spend a lot of time in low-income communities. And I think that's when that contrast became really clear for me that because I had all that built environment support, there was more opportunity for me. And so one of the many ways that we have to drive equity for kids in communities is to see not only that they have strong education and parenting, but really that they also have those contextual factors and that social infrastructure that can provide support for them.
1: Your mom sounds like an amazing, amazing woman and influence in your life. Did you have other influences or mentors as you went in and how did this progress into healthcare and and how you started your career there? For me, my peer group and my mentors
2: came a lot through dance and theater that I did as a child. It was a really good, safe outlet for us. And that was an important counterweight to some of the other stressors. And it drove some discipline, I think, into our lives that we might not have otherwise had it as kids. I had a couple of teachers in high school. Coach Patrick was one of them who said something to me. He told me that I was intellectually curious and no one had ever mm-hmm. told me that before. And it just felt cool that somebody recognized an interesting talent that I had or a characteristic. And it inspired me to want to continue to learn and improve and make myself. I mean, he just happened to say the right thing at the right time. He was the social yeah, right. studies teacher. And then somewhere in about that same time, when I was in the eighth grade, I was still dancing a lot, thinking I was going to go on that pathway, actually, professionally. And I'm not saying I was that good, but I thought in my head at the time, probably.
1: We are lucky in healthcare then that you didn't become a prima ballerina because we need you in this space.
2: So I, I did a little due diligence. I don't want to be a dancer because it sounds like a difficult life. What are the things that I like? I like helping people. I like science. And then I did a book report and did it on radiation therapy and got to go visit some radiologists in their practice. And I thought, well, this seems like a nice marriage of all those things. I think I'll be a doctor. It was that naive. I didn't know any doctors. My, my parents hadn't been to college later my mom did graduate from college. She went back to school, but I just didn't have any idea what I was getting into. And I would say Lynn. That's a little thematic of many things that I've jumped off the cliff in in my life. I'm like, this seems like the right thing to do. I'm just going to go and then sort of learn along the way. But, oh, I never look back. It was not easy for me to get into medicine. And statistically, I'm not the kind of kid that should have gotten in, especially back in 88 when I started med school. I mean, poor kid, single parent, nobody in the family was a doctor. And I was able to get into Tulane, who gave me a chance. And then I was able to get a scholarship from the National Health Service Corps to pay for school and otherwise I would have been in crazy debt. But as everything worked along the pathway, it was the right school for me to be at. It was the right city here in New Orleans and HRSA, that program that sort of drove me towards primary care were sort of all the right mix of things to build out a career that I just love.
1: Amazing because you knocked it out of the park getting your MD, your MPH, you went to Harvard too, right? So there's so many things you did. How did you then Become commissioner of health for the city of New Orleans versus practicing medicine was that also accidental or was it intentional in terms of how you thought about your next step?
2: Backing up before I became health commissioner, I joined the faculty at Tulane when I finished my residency and I'm an internist, and I had in my head that I wanted to do hospital quality work. And so I was doing that for free. I told the chair of medicine that I'll do all this other work, but I'll also want to do this work. So he said, fine, but I'm not paying you to do it because he didn't even understand what it was I was trying to accomplish. And I did that work. However, a few months in, he said to me, Karen, starting July 1st, next year, you're going to be the director of the resident." internal medicine clinic. This is where the trainees see patients and we teach. And I said, thank you so much for the opportunity, but I'm not interested in running an outpatient clinic. I like hospital work. And he said, I don't think you understand starting July 1st, you're going to be running the resident clinic. And I, oh, I, I see what's going on here. And it was such a gift. I, I didn't want to do it. I hated clinic. I thought it was a broken environment where you never had the records of the patients. This is back in the paper days. You didn't have continuity. It was difficult to teach in that environment. And I liked the pace of inpatient medicine, et cetera, et cetera. So what he gave me as a gift was many things. One is a leadership role where I had essentially free reign to redesign a system for mm-hmm. this is charity hospital or public hospital, because there was no one else paying attention to it. And so we got to implement electronic scheduling and we began looking at electronic health records even way back in this about 1999. And we did just a, a lot of quality improvement work essentially so, to make it so that when people arrived at clinic instead of it being 15% of the time that they had a record there, That it was 90% of the time. And we were able to improve continuity and change the wait times and get down from 12 months to the next available appointment to two weeks and hold it there. And I just got so excited about the fact that you could take a broken system, do a root cause, work with teams, and make a better system for the patients, but also for the people who were there in the learning environment and in the care environment. And that spurred in me an interest to do more than take care of patients in front of me, which I did do for 20 years. I love. The practice in medicine. But if you really want to level the playing field to really raise the floor and eliminate the mean, you've got to have a better system is the point. Mm-hmm. And I got really excited about the system this and not only in that environment, but as time went on, going back to this idea of context and the systems in which we live, learn, work and play. And that's public health. And wanted to expand what I was able to do to help my patients and my community beyond what happened in the healthcare environment, but into their everyday life.
1: It's amazing. And I know we'll get to this later, but in Silicon Valley parlance, like you wanted to scale. Yes. <laughs> be, to scale. Be working on a platform, right? Beyond just the one-on-one patient doctor experience. So let's flash forward to when you were there and love to hear about one of the things that happened, I would believe at this time was Hurricane Katrina. And what it meant to be in that role as a leader during that crisis. Did that shape how you think about things? And then we'll fast forward and we'll get there with COVID obviously, but love to hear about that early experience in public health crises.
2: When Katrina happened in August of 2005, I actually, Lynn was still in the faculty at Tulane and I had a line job. I was the chief of general medicine, but about three quarters of my time was research oriented. And I was on a pathway of trying to change the world one paper at a time because I was doing this very academic thing. And some people, like Francis Collins, who run the NIH, they can change the world one paper at a time, or Tony Fauci. That was definitely not going to be my path. And so I think the occurrence of that catastrophe was a moment in time when I had to reflect on where I could make the most difference, is the point. And because of my experiences with knowledge about relationships with passion for the health of my community, I decided to put down my more academic pursuits and step into the community. And it's a long story, and I think the long and short of it is that from the time after the storm passed until the time I went to Washington, so some period of about 10 years, worked on rebuilding community health and public health in New Orleans. The reason I tell you I wasn't health commissioner in particular is so that you can understand that, for me, that experience was about influential leadership. We had a vacuum, we had no public health leadership, essentially locally, and the community was struggling and flailing and trying to figure out what to do. So one of the roles that I had was to convene and to bring people to the table who came from community health, mental health, social care sector, academia, and who didn't have a discrete role or responsibility, but who cared deeply about rebuilding a better New Orleans. And you will find that story in parallel, we did this in health, but it was a similar story in the educational system and the criminal justice system and mm-hmm. even the levies, that citizens stepped forward and said, this is broken, and it needs to be fixed. And the leadership we have right now is incapable of doing that. And so we're going to find a way to, to not only stand up the new structure, but stand up a new governmental infrastructure that can better support the community going forward. And that is one of the reasons that I became health commissioners, because I had done all this work through my academic chair, and we built out community health and really made a lot of progress. But I didn't want to leave a city without a strong public health department, without real statutory public health leadership, that Mm -hmm. every day woke up and said, today, again, is my responsibility is the health of everyone who lives, learns, works, and plays in my community. And how can we bring forward that kind of vision of a truly healthier New Orleans? Because it's not only going to happen from healthcare is the point. I knew we needed to have a stronger public health enterprise. So that sort of high-level, happier story about how we got to improving health and public health in the community. I'll tell you, we built a network of community health centers that serve about a quarter of a million people, which is about a quarter of the city of New Orleans. At the time, most all of them were uninsured. Now they're insured through the Affordable Care Act or Medicaid centers, receiving care in patient center medical homes that are very high quality across the city. And they're enabled with health IT. We're all very proud of the work we did. It's an accredited public health department But none of that was seamless or easy, and it required, frankly, just a a lot of like me getting up day after day after day saying, I'm not going to let this defeat me. (laughs) Like It's the right thing to do for our community and and just being tenacious about wanting to overcome that big crisis, but then realizing that every day there were all these little crises that everybody in my community was facing every day, and we needed to find a way to smooth that out for them too.
1: One thing in that experience, which would be great to hear because there are so many individuals listening to this is that sounds like a tumultuous time and also you had to be influential at times and then it sounds like you had more line authority, but you still had to gather different opinions and probably different leadership. I've got to presume when you talk about community health, how did you as a leader galvanize people to a vision and then to action? Were there certain things that you learned that we could each take as leaders understand that because that's particularly a difficult situation that every leader sees and love to hear if there were ways or strategies or methods that you thought about.
2: I think that they're just generally good advice for being a good human. (laughs) One is to listen, but I think more importantly, to listen with humility. I actually started to learn that from my patients even before the crisis, but over the course of all of these years, even into today, I find that If I can listen with humility and be honest about that, be honest about where my knowledge begins and ends, that people are then even more forthcoming. It's a trust building exercise, I guess, maybe at the at the root. And in medicine, trust is like job one, right? If you don't trust me as your doctor, we're not going to get very far together in your health and your health outcomes. And so a lot of my patients really help me understand about listening. But also there's this thing about listening, Lynn, which is I've had to continue to learn to hear. I'm I'm trying to think of how to say this to you. I've had so many patients where they're trying to tell me that they're taking their medication, but their blood pressure is still high and it's not really working for them. I have this one woman in particular I could tell you about. And over the course of time, as I continue to build a relationship with her and really listen, I learned that she was in an abusive relationship and she was compliant. She was just under so much adrenaline stress all the time from this physically abusive relationship. That's the help she needed. She didn't need to keep hammering on her about taking her meds. When we got her that help, she was able to get off her hypertensives, actually. Her story, and there's so many others where it was looking past the first layer is what I'm trying to say. That listening and then listening and knowing that you don't know the answers, so mm-hmm. not going into it with the solution, but listening really what is their problem, I think is the first part. The second is, I think, just being able to find common ground. This is one of the things I love to do in work. And in a time of crisis, when you're trying to bring people to a shared vision to get over the hump, when you're trying to get people just to develop shared policy work that I've done at the national level, or just to solve a thorny problem that feels more mundane, there's always common ground. The Venn diagrams always overlap, right? And to me, it's just such a sweet spot when you find that moment and you're like, oh, what you're saying is this. And what you're saying is this, does this make sense that this is the thing that we can all do together? Yes. Okay. Well, then let's move forward on that. And maybe one of the reasons I like doing is because it feels so joyful when you find that place of common ground, even for people who think they have nothing in common.
1: We need so much of that right now. Mm. Absolutely. And so powerful. I'd love to then delve into, because again, the patient human relationship you just said with physician and then you did it on a community level and then you went on a national level at HHS and it sounds like a lot of those principles held true but did they further in some way or did you learn new lessons from that
2: it was so hard to do federally and there were a bunch of reasons one is it's really easy when you're working in the federal hierarchy you know there's these appointed positions and you're a principal so then you have a ring of people around you that are dictating your schedule and telling you where to go. And it would be very easy to just live in that bubble and have people telling you what you want to hear and you only see things that they want you to see. And I had a moment actually when I came back to New Orleans for a weekend and I was driving around with my friend who had become health commissioner after I left. And we were going to an event in a community, a really low-income community here. and And I looked at her and I said, I haven't seen poverty in months. This is not good. Like my job is to make policy for all people in America and not just the people that can make it into my office. And that caused me to shift a few things, but definitely as I did trips in the field to do listening sessions and to break my team of setting up a listening session with people who would say, we love your policy. We think your HIT approach is great, right? We love electronic health records. It's like, that's not what I need to hear. I need to hear, this is broken, you're an idiot, like these are the things that you should do differently. Because you have to be real about it, right? I mean, you have to get real input and feedback. I had to work to make sure I stayed in touch Mm -hmm. with a counterweight, counter opinions, counter points of view, and just frankly reality and find new ways to do it. And we'll get to Google, but I had started to do that when I joined Google with listening sessions and then the pandemic happened. And so it's been harder for me to feel like I can stay grounded in who I'm here to serve, which is really what drives me.
1: It's really beautiful because I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the one thing that's given you edge in your career is just this perspective that started from childhood and the listening and the understanding and then through again, your relationship as a physician and then to the community and then on a national level. And now you're doing that, it sounds like at Google too, like that's one thread, if you will. Are there other edges or things that you feel like in your career that have taken you to that next level of understanding or leadership? I'm
2: a little unsure how to answer the question because I feel so grateful, honestly, for the opportunities that I've had. And I know we're not supposed to say that. I know we're supposed to say I've worked hard and I've prepared myself. All these opportunities are here because I made them and created them, but clearly didn't create a hurricane. But what I did do was say, this is a mess and Mm -hmm. I have skills and I can make a difference. And so I tend to run into the fire is what I say sometimes. Like I, when there is a problem, a disaster, a broken health department, a broken community, I'm not saying Google's broken at all. I think it's a different issue. Google's got an opportunity, but I don't shy away from those kinds of challenges. I'm actually really inspired by them. I love things that are a mess and finding order to them and Mm -hmm. then seeing that they are a new, better iteration. And so I don't know if that's edge, But it definitely drives me. And so sometimes what I'm saying is things have come to me and some people might have run away (laughs) because they look too messy and scary. And those are exactly the kinds of thorny things that I like to tackle with really smart people and think about what could be, how do you make something better out of something that's not so good right now?
1: Well, and it energizes you. You can hear it in kind of how you're thinking. And it probably dovetails to what your social studies teacher said to you is you're intellectually curious and you put those things together and you listen.
2: Yeah, I think one of my other skills, this is a skill of mine, is that I'm a good bridger. I see ways that pieces fit together that I think maybe sometimes other people don't see. And I don't know why I can see those things. Like I love bridging medicine and public health and technology. That's why I love social determinants of health and public health, because it's all about bridging these worlds and their different languages and cultures and approaches to problem solving. And so I love applying that in the different worlds where I've been. It's like bringing the the best of the best together. It's, It's part of that finding common ground thing too, I guess.
1: Let's definitely talk about that, how you've bridged into the technology world. I'll never forget you and I were on a phone call and I was talking about what was happening in the Valley, and you were talking about, you know, in healthcare, and you, you just stopped at some point in the conversation and said, Lynn, I just like the way you talk. And I know what you mean. We use these terms in Silicon Valley, and I could hear the wheels turning, A, on the intellectual curiosity, and then the bridging that you're talking about. And sure enough, I think it had probably been a couple months after that conversation or a little bit more, but you joined Google. Talk about that decision, I could see it with the intellectual curiosity, the bridging. And then what has it been like to be part of now this tech leader, which is so different than all the other experiences you've had?
2: It's definitely different than any other experience. So there are parts of it that are similar. I find, you know, that looks familiar. I sort of understand that process. Just to kind of go back to the origin stories and sort of thinking about other little girls growing up in poverty and what are the things that they need to have the kind of opportunities that I've had essentially and little boys too. I think part of my journey throughout my career has been, okay, well, I'm good at health. I'm good at medicine. I'm going to do that. But I also want to scale to your point and I need a bigger platform. So there are more and more ways that I can continue to make a difference. And as I learned about the power of data to tell stories and to drive continuity of care, continuity of relationship, to impact public health decision making. That got me more and more involved in sort of understanding not only the application of data, but the sourcing of it and the respect for it and how we work with consumers and communities to do the right thing with their data. This is part of my Office of National Coordinator role and as the National Coordinator is how do we think about consumer access to data, drive policy that gives them that access in a way that is meaningful to them. And then What are the use cases? How do we put it to good use? But there's more to the the story than just the data and the people. It's also about policy and revenue and spending and rules and sort of all these other accoutrements. And I've had experience in a number of those areas, but I think the one thing that I never have had the chance to really understand is how do we give agency or ignite the agency in consumers? When you're doing public health, you're trying to get people to feel empowered or want to take care of their health or engage in your let's move program. And it's a struggle because it's hard to know what's on their minds and how to meet them where they are when you're not as knowledgeable about it. So fast forward to a company like Google, where every second of every day, people all around the world meet us where we are. They're like, hey, I have this question. Hey, I'm interested in this. And just the shift of focus then for me is if I understand the healthcare side and even the public health side, a big, really other important part of the equation is how can we really empower consumers, give them the power. I'm not using all necessarily the right words because I really do genuinely believe they have power. We just don't know how to harness it and they don't know how to harness it. And so that was a huge driver for me and being excited to join the company, just knowing that This is an opportunity to really, truly work with community and see if we can figure out how to create a healthier planet.
1: It completely makes sense. I mean, you are one of these rare people who have now seen all these experiences. And let's walk in. You started at Google, I think, in late Q4. And then we flash forward into the first quarter of 2020, COVID hits. And just all of your experience, I've just got to believe there are not many people at Google who are that right place experience for this type of crisis. What has it been like to address COVID in this world on a Google platform?
2: Cabeated by saying would be delighted if we'd never had the pandemic. On the other hand, I wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else. You said it well. I mean, I have this experience with crisis management. I know public health. I know science. I know medicine. I understand policy. I didn't know Google that well at the time, but I was able to marry up with people who did. I got pulled into the company's central response early on in the crisis. So I was able to apply my talents, not only from what I learned during Katrina, but as health commissioner, you deal with crises all the time. And then when I was in Washington, we had Ebola and Zika and Flint and crises there as well. So I was able to provide the clinical leadership for the company response, as well as product stewardship around how we message to the world about what COVID is and how they can protect themselves and their communities. We have search and maps and YouTube and ads and play and all kinds of other platforms where we can amplify the messages from public health authorities. And that's essentially the most of what we've done, though. Quite a bit also is providing data for evidence-based decision-making for public health and for medicine and partnering with public health through our exposure notifications work that we've done. And I'll give you like one statistic that is that we created, for example, some public health messaging around COVID to direct people to public health authorities on YouTube. And within the first six months, we'd had more than 400 billion impressions of people looking at health information that we put forward. You can never get that kind of reach, no matter which government you work for. And the fact that we're giving people good information, like it just feels really, I'm just glad that we can be here and partner with public health in this time. So It's been a whirlwind year, though. (laughs) We could talk more about what else I've learned, but I was glad I was here in this moment in history because I think we're doing a lot of good.
1: I'm glad you're there, too. I mean, I take what you just said, and in a way, you've scaled from the one-to-one relationship, and I should check the city of New Orleans, like how big that is, and then we have 330 million people in the U S when you were in HHS and now you've gone to four to 5 billion right in the world and being able to touch that. And it's just, I'm so glad It's a that dream for here.
2: public health and nerds like me. I have to tell you, you know, if you really, world if you want to.
1: Quite frankly, now is what you're tackling. Karen truly is what you're tackling. I want to just wrap up kind of reflective, you know, you talked about little girls and, and little boys, but if you were to give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would that be?
2: I have two pieces of advice. <laughs> One is about pacing. And this is a common question I get from people earlier in their careers. They want to do all these things and do them so quickly. And it's not that you shouldn't be helpful when you can be, but I do think in retrospect, there's some things I could have paced a little bit better so that you have some of that balance. Though, I mean, honestly, Lynn, I probably wouldn't have changed a, <laughs> changed a thing about what I did but we do have a family motto, which is illegitimate non proberendum. And it's don't let people get you down. I'll, I'll clean it mm-hmm. up a little bit. And my husband and I think about that a lot. It came up, especially after Katrina. Things were very difficult. I was sometimes at odds with people in power, but we were always trying to just do the right thing for community first. And I had some terrific support from our university president, for example, not Cowan, but you know, sometimes people weren't so nice and, and Jay would often tell me that he'd say illegitimate non-carbonate. Don't worry about that. Just do the right thing. Just keep doing the right thing. So I would have told myself that before 2005 when that started to be um, our family motto.
1: That's amazing. And maybe that's the title of your book. If you were to have a book, maybe we have that title there. Well, Karen, thank you so much. I mean, honestly, when I say this, you are the right person at the right time at the right place to make this world a better place i truly mean that your story is just so powerful and thank you so much for taking this time with us and sharing from the earlier years to everything in between to influencing world health now which is the platform you have we really appreciate it
2: well then, thank you so much for the time it's, uh, always a delight to get to talk to you and I'm happy that I got to share a little bit of my story. Thank you so much.
0: Her Story is a podcast produced by Think Medium. For more leadership stories from inspiring women across healthcare, tune in every Wednesday. Please subscribe to Her Story on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. You can also view Her Story episodes in video and access exclusive content on our website at thinkmedium.com. Be sure to rate and review Her Story so we can continue bringing you insights from influential women across the country. If you enjoyed this episode, we appreciate you spreading the word to your friends, family, colleagues, and mentors who might be interested. For questions and suggestions, please contact us at herstory@thinkmedium.com. at Thanks for listening.